So before we get into our text, I want us to think about animal symbolism. Because when we think of certain animals, it brings certain images to mind. And we have those things in our culture. And sometimes reading scripture, those things can be lost on us. In our culture, you know, we have sayings like, sly like a fox, or an elephant never forgets, or dog is a man's best friend. Never heard these? Yes, these you have heard. Does a bear do his business in the woods? Yes, he does. We were hiking yesterday, and... It was freaking the guys out that there was fresh bear business right in front of us. Like, he was probably there a few minutes before us. But we we were fine. No bear attacks. They're more afraid of us than we are of them. At least I kept telling them that. And when we think about animals, and when we hear um, certain animals, certain things come to mind, especially when you think about pets. Because when someone has a pet, when someone has an animal, it kind of draws some images to us, and it tells you a lot about that person. Like, oh, you have a cat. That's nice. How many cats do you have? Because there's like a certain level or over a certain amount of cats, you become crazy. And so there's, I don't know what that acceptable number is, maybe two, maybe three. Beyond that, it's, it's, it's a little suspect. Hunter says zero. If you are, this is interesting looking this up, like what kind of animal symbolism we have. So if you are a cat person, if you own a cat, you're more likely to, to live alone, to be single or to be divorced. You have a limited need for companionship. You're more independent. Uh, there's no such thing as a cat parks. You know, cat people are not social people. They don't go to, to cat parks to walk their cats. On average, cat people have higher intelligence, is what studies show. But there is a, there's a thin line between genius and insanity, so that goes into play there. If you're a dog person, you're more extroverted, and uh, you have a need for companionship. You are more energetic, and you also tend to be a rule follower. You, uh, you, you like the challenge of caring for a dog and taking care of it and all that. I was looking for interesting things on bird owners. The only thing that's interesting, if you're a bird owner, you're most likely of animal owners to be unemployed. I guess that's, that's a mark of a bird owner. If you're an owner of a fish, you're the most happy of the pet owners, and you're the least materialistic, which I could see. Uh, if you own a snake, you're unconventional, you think. They're the most independent of animal uh, owners, and they're actually the most neat and tidy, which... It kind of makes sense. You could kind of see that. No fur or anything like that. And so we are a pet culture. And if you're someone like me who doesn't really care for animals or can take them or leave them, people look at you like you have like have three heads or like, what? You don't like babies? Not that I, I don't hate dogs. I just, I could take them or leave them. I like animals in the wild. I like animals on my plate. I just don't like them in my house. Um, and And so for some of us, we're not animal people. But for some people... Animals become not just symbolism, but actually idols. Uh, Deshaun mentioned we were at a live after five on Thursday. We had some great conversations. But my first conversation of the day was with a woman who right away wanted to, had a very important question to ask about our church. Her first question was, do you believe the animals have souls? It's like, oh man. So here I am trying to get theological. I'm trying to explain the uh, creation order and how God created everything and created everything good, but he created man as a pinnacle. She's like, no, I don't care about all that. Do my animals have souls? Because I've been trying to find a church who would tell me that my animals have souls and I haven't found one yet. It's like, well, at least I'm thankful for that, that you haven't found a church that will tell you your animals have souls. And so I tried to talk to her. It just went off the rails from there. And she finally said, I'd rather go to hell than be in a heaven where I couldn't be with my animals forever. It's like, well, careful what you ask for. Here's your popcorn. See you later. And that was, that was pretty much the end of the conversation. I don't know where you go from that. And so in our culture, we have all of these, this animal symbolism 
but so does the Bible. But you think throughout Scripture, anytime an animal is used uh, either in a parable, in an analogy, in a narrative, there is usually some detail that is being that our attention is being drawn to. You think the first animal mentioned specifically in Scripture is the serpent. And so, you know, we get uh, all kinds of imagery coming out of that. And then you go through, through the Old Testament, lions and oxen. Uh, in the New Testament, you get the Pharisees being called vipers. And we can go on and on about all the animal symbolism. And so this morning, we're going we're to talk mainly about two very important animals, the lamb and the dove, and how these two coming together at Christ's baptism tell us so much about who he is and what he came to do. And so we're going to focus on those two animals this morning. So if you have your, your Bibles, uh, turn to John chapter 1. And I hope you see all of the imagery that comes into play here. Because John is continuing to describe who Jesus is. Every week for the past few weeks, we've looked at a different element of who the Son of God is, who the Word is. And now we're going to look at some terms uh, that are applied here in the gospel. And one of them is only applied in John. So we're going to start in John uh, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom the spirit descends and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, maker, creator, Lord, majestic in splendor, sovereign over all the earth, over all created things. And in a moment in history, You bring together a prophet, your son, your spirit, and a witness that will continue throughout the ages. And Lord, I just pray that as we look at this text, that it comes alive to us this morning. That as you draw a picture of the lamb slain for the sin of the world, and as you unite the lamb and the dove for a ministry on earth for the repentance and forgiveness of sins and life everlasting, that we understand we are part of your cosmic redemption. As you are reconciling all things to yourself, it begins here. Let us be people who are faithful to your word, who are convicted by the power of the gospel, and who have your name ever on our lips. As we leave this place, we proclaim the glory of the lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just want to bring us up to speed of where we are. This is an exciting and tense time in the life of Israel. Because we're coming off of 400 years of prophetic silence. So from the last prophet to John the Baptist, there are 400 years without the word of God being spoken to God's people. 
Now, there's some things that go on. There's some wars between the Jews and the Romans. But all in all, it's a pretty quiet time. And the Pharisees have kind of stepped into power here. And they're controlling the, the religious climate and the religious narrative. And so they're the, the keepers of the doctrine. Last week, we saw that they were asking good questions. These are, these are valid questions. Who are you? What is your, your purpose? What's your ministry? Why are you baptizing? Those are good questions to ask, and those are questions to continue to ask. But they're asking a man, John the Baptist, who's very disruptive. Because he doesn't preach in the synagogues. He doesn't do what the Pharisees expect him to do. Like Hunter said, he's this important guy who's really weird on the outside. He's covered in animal fur and he eats locusts and honey and he's proclaiming this repentance and forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist is shaking things up. He's disruptive enough. But he says, there's one who comes after me. He's greater than I. I can't even untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy enough to spit shine his shoes. Him is the one who you look out for. Now, this is going to disrupt the whole religious climate. And so John in his gospel, not the Baptist here, but he's continuing to show us who Jesus is through this this narrative. Um, And it's helpful as we start to look into this text that we also look into the other gospels. And this is something I encourage you to do. I don't have time to do this this morning. But as we go through the gospel of John, look at the comparative accounts in each gospel narrative. Because the other three, uh, the synoptics as we looked at a few weeks ago, they're a summary of of Jesus' ministry. But John is presenting a theological thread that kind of ties them together. And John is assuming that you've read the other Gospels. So to fully understand John, you need to spend time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so if you were to look at this account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'd see a couple things. You'd see uh, one in Matthew 3 that Matthew gives you the detail that there is a need for repentance. And it is the water baptism that is pointing to repentance. And it is in order to fulfill all righteousness. This is an important detail that we need. If you look in Mark, Mark 1 begins quickly into John's baptism. And we get the, um, the baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And so that detail is added. And Mark also includes that people are confessing their sins. So there's a real interplay going on here between John the Baptist and the people that he's teaching and baptizing. They're confessing their sins publicly. So there is this radical ministry going on here in the wilderness. And in Luke 3, we get the most complete picture of John's teaching. We actually get a a mini sermon of John and and we hear what he's teaching his followers and those coming to him for baptism. And we also have the detail included in Luke that Jesus is praying before his baptism. So this is a faithful gospel ministry to repentance and forgiveness with teaching and prayer. And it culminates in the baptism of Christ. And so this is really important because this is one of the few events. And I want you guys to to pay attention to this. Don't miss this. This is one of the few events that's recorded in all four gospels. We spend, it seems like, half of our year on, on Christmas. Christmas is only mentioned in two gospels. The beginning of the ministry of Jesus is mentioned in all four. Only the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of of Christ is as consistent in all of the Gospels. Don't you think we should pay attention to this? For us, as believers, every Gospel writer felt the need to include this before Jesus' ministry. This is important, so we're going to see why that's so important this week.
So let's begin here in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming. Now, normally we just breeze over this. But this is a pretty amazing week. If you look at each one of these sections, verse 29 begins with the next day. Verse 35, what will be next week, begins with the next day. Verse 43, what will be in two weeks, begins with the next day. And verse two, or verse one of chapter two begins with on the third day. So we've got day one, last week, this interchange between John the Baptist and the Pharisees. We've got day two, day three, day four, and on the third day from day four. This is in one week. This is an amazing week, and all these things are successive. And so John is drawing attention to this is a pretty important week because it it begins with the confession of who Jesus is, his baptism, the um, appointing of disciples, and then his first miracle. And so this is something that that we would miss if if we're not spending time in John the way that that we are. And so I don't want you to miss that. But the first detail here, uh, the next day he, he saw Jesus coming toward him. If you're familiar with the other Gospels, you remember that when John was in the womb, he he leapt for joy. In the spirit, he leapt because Jesus had come near him. And so now as an adult, he leaps again in the spirit. Not because of a long lost cousin, but as a prophet of God. Behold, this is prophetic language, like when a king walks in the room. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we're going to spend most of our time on verse 29 uh, because the Lamb of God is so important. We need to understand this. And there's so much symbolism that goes on throughout all Scripture. So we're going to spend most of our time here. And the the rest is modifying verse 29 here. So the Lamb of God. John is speaking as a prophet. And this detail is mentioned only in John. This term Lamb of God is not mentioned in the synoptics. And John, as we've said before, John is assuming that you're already familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account because John came decades later. But John has a more fully developed theology. John understands all the implications of who Christ was and what he came to do. So this detail that may have been overlooked or um, just not included in the other synoptics is on full display here in John. We're going to get to more of John's revelation from the book of Revelation in a moment. But this is important because this is powerful imagery. Because the lamb represented a lot in the culture of the Israelites. First and foremost, what may come to mind when we think of lamb is it's they're innocent and they're gentle. But culturally, it goes further. It's not just a delicious Middle Eastern delicacy. It is. But beyond that, there's more uh, theological and spiritual implications. Because of the many names that have been attributed to Jesus so far, I mean, we're just 29 verses into John's gospel. Of the many names that are attributed to Jesus, this one is the most radical. This one is the most incendiary because it challenges your very existence. It challenges their world and ours. Because lamb also in the the Jewish mind was a sacrificial animal. And lamb is needed for sins. And Jesus being the lamb of God is offensive. Because it reminds you, it reminds me, it reminds them that you need saving. That your sin is offensive to God. And you are a sinner separated from God who requires a sacrifice. And without the spilling of blood, you can't be reconciled to God. So while the lambs are cute and cuddly, there's also this this undercurrent of the spiritual reality. That a sacrifice is required. Blood either on the head of the animal or the head of the offender. 
And it is unavoidable that to hear this language, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to see yourself as a sinner, to see yourself as being needing to be reconciled to God. And that is something that we have no cultural parallel for here. There is no universal recognition in our nation, in our culture, or, or any culture for that matter, that you need to be reconciled to God and that you are a sinner. This is something unique in Israelite culture, and this is something that is so foreign to us. Because we, as we go about our day, there is no, there's no concern for holiness or reconciliation to a holy God. We live in a world of subjective morality, where everyone has their own barometer of what is good and what is acceptable, and everyone has a God of their own making. This is so foreign to people today. Because as we engage with people and have a lot of conversations with believers and non-believers, the idea of goodness comes up all the time. What is good? Well, I'm a good person. What is good enough? Our culture doesn't just have a problem with sin. They do. They're sinners before an angry God, a wrathful God who is full of justice but also full of mercy. But they also have a problem recognizing that sin. They also have a problem admitting that sin. So another conversation I had this week was with a friend of mine who, by all accounts, on the surface is a good guy. I like him. I like hanging out with him. Does not know the Lord. This is the, the guy that if I was stuck on the side of the road at one o'clock in the morning, I would call him and he would wake up and come get me. This is the guy who would literally give you the shirt off his back. This is the guy if you had no place to stay, he would open his house for you. And we had a conversation this week and we talked about his idea of what it means to be a good person and for him to not be a religious person. And we went through a lot of different things and we looked at his idea of subjective morality. And I told him, I said, you realize your position requires a lot of faith because you are creating your own standard for goodness of which you, of course, live up to. And if there's a God, maybe he will accept you based on your standard. And so he recognized some of the problems with that. You can pray for me. We're supposed to have a follow-up conversation today. But this is a man who is good in his own eyes and has no need for a sacrificial lamb. This language would fall on dead ears. Well, what do I need a sacrifice for? I'm a good person. I don't need to be reconciled to God. I'm not a sinner. This is the culture we live in. These are conversations you will have. These are people who believe this. And when I asked him, is this something you're willing to die for. You were willing to go to death to believe this. He said, I hadn't really considered that. So praying that I pray for him all the time. And I pray that the Lord works on, on his heart. But for us to think about the lamb and the need for sacrifice, the need for reconciliation. Because the biblical teaching on, on the lamb is vast. And we're going to go over some of it briefly. But all of these allusions, you know, don't, don't get me wrong here. The analogy breaks down at some point. These references to the lamb are not full in each one. They're allusions to the real thing. They're all pointing forward to Christ. So we're going to walk through a few of these. Genesis 22, the first specific mention we get of a lamb. And if you remember when we went through this in Hebrews 11, we get uh, Abraham walking up the mountain with Isaac. And Abraham is carrying the torch and the knife. Isaac is carrying the wood. And what does Abraham say to his son? God will provide for himself a lamb for the offering. And that is a lot of faith coming from a man of faith. And that is a powerful statement that God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. This is to point us toward the lamb that God would one day provide. 
Again, when you have the people of God in Egypt and they're in slavery and God is going to deliver them, what is their means of deliverance? Of course, it's the angel of the Lord, but their means of protection is the blood of the lamb. A spotless lamb painted over their doorpost. And when you're an Israelite in first century Palestine, you would hear these words of the Lamb of God and remember how God provided for Abraham. Remember how God provided for Israel when they were in Egypt. And how were they saved? By the Lamb. We began uh, our service by reading from Isaiah 53. This great suffering servant passage. And there are many prophecies about Messiah. And this one is probably the least favorite of the Jews then and the Jews now. Because the suffering servant is not a popular messianic prophecy. They wanted a political Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who came in power. They wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Rome in their lifetime. Not a Messiah who would suffer. And to this day, Isaiah 53 is avoided and even skipped in readings in temples and synagogues all over the world. Most Jews are not familiar with Isaiah 53. It so clearly points to Christ. You have to have a hardened heart to overlook Isaiah 53. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture reads Isaiah 53. Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 8 with me. This, by the way, is my ideal evangelism scenario. So... If God loves me, I know he does. I want one of these situations before I die. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 30. So this is Philip walking, and there's an Ethiopian eunuch. So verse 30 says, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, and that day they read out loud, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet, this, this prophet say about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. I wish evangelism was always like that. Someone reading scripture, can you tell this to me? You get to the gospel, and then right away they repent and uh, turn to the Lord. It does not always happen that way. Uh, I wish it did. But that passage is so powerful. There's this connection between the Messiah who was promised in, in Isaiah and the Messiah who had come, Jesus. And in that passage, we see the power of the lamb who opens not his mouth, the lamb slain for sin. I want to look at a couple other passages, and because I want to move through these quickly, they're going to be up on the screen. Uh, and I love to hear furiously turning pages, but 
we don't have time. So I want to go through these quickly, just do a quick survey in the New Testament of how they understood the doctrine of the Lamb of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Sound like John? Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The whole purpose, the sacrifice of the lamb is so that our faith and hope are in him. The lamb is culminating all that God has been doing in redemptive history into one man in one time in Christ. And John uh, spends the most time on this concept of the lamb and we see a lot of this in Revelation. Look at what worship sounds like in heaven. Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. If you don't like this imagery of a lamb, you don't see yourself as a sinner, you're going to hate heaven. When you hear people talk about a heaven of their own making, it is not a worship of, of the lamb that was slain for their sins. It's a place where they see themselves as God. But when you see heaven in scripture, it is the lamb on the throne. It is all of creation crying out. The very rocks and trees are crying out worthy is the lamb. And when all comes to culmination, when all is reconciled to God, look at Revelation 22. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is Revelation 22, uh, 1 through 3. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. Coming from the throne of the Lamb of God is the healing of the nations. And this leads us to the next line in our text. Still in verse 29. I promise we're going to move faster through the other ones. But this is important in understanding the rest of it. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes away the sin of the world. The healing of the nations. This is important here. This sin is not plural. We're not talking about a universal atonement here. This is not a lamb who came to take away all the sins of all the world. This is a lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. The very effect of the curse on everything in creation. This is the one who will take away the sin of every nation in the world. Every tongue, tribe, and nation believes in him. Sin will be will be taken away. And ultimately, it will be the end of sin in the world forever. So this is actually not just a statement of atonement, but of, but of um, cosmic redemption. We're all of the world. We reconciled to God through this lamb. And the lamb, not just for me, the lamb is not just the answer for us, 
but for all people, this is the answer. This is what reconciled to God looks like. And the beauty of the gospel is that when we speak to people, we can say, my Savior just didn't make me new. He's going to make all things new. He's going to take the very presence of sin out of this world one day. And if you trust and believe in him, if you repent of your sins and you ask for forgiveness, your sins will be taken away too in the midst of that beautiful redemption and reconciliation because only redemption and reconciliation is through the Lamb. There is no other reconciliation to God. There is no other redemption. There is no other forgiveness other than the Lamb. This is so important. This is the only answer for the world. Because as we speak to people, the world offers plenty of answers. The world offers plenty of of, of theories. But the gospel speaks plainly. The lamb that takes away the sin of the world. John goes on. Verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. A little complicated. But if you remember, John was born first. John is older. So he's saying he ranks before me and he was before me. So John is speaking prophetically here of his divinity, of his preeminence, of Christ being before him, not just in age, but before all created things. So this is John speaking to someone who ranks before him and has preeminence, deity above him. So that's important because in the next verse, verse 31, he says, I myself did not know him. So John is not speaking of his own accord. This is the language of a prophet. He's not speaking of his own knowledge, of, of his own knowledge. I'm sure he knew his cousin. I'm sure that he, he heard about, um, about Jesus. I'm sure they had some interaction. But his knowledge of his divinity did not come from himself. This is not, this is not self-revelation. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John's baptism. He's preparing the way. He's preaching a, 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 um, a gospel of repentance and baptizing for the forgiveness of sins, which precedes faith. Repentance must be proclaimed before faith can be brought into being. Before regeneration, there must be repentance. And so this is the picture we're getting, that John's, John's ministry was one to point to Christ. John's ministry was to encourage people to repent and believe, to confess in their sins, because he's preparing the way for one who had a baptism greater than his. Because you can't trust in a Savior that you don't need. You can't ask for forgiveness you don't recognize that you need it, and you can't be saved by someone who you don't recognize. John was preparing the way for the Messiah that must come. And only when you repent of your sins can you share in Christ's baptism. Only when you trust in the Lamb can you die with Him a death to sin. Can you live with Him a life eternal. And this is what John was preparing the way for. Not a baptism in the end in itself, but a baptism to reveal the Son to all of Israel. And this is the purpose of his ministry. John, like Hunter explained last week, is deflecting the glory and attention away from himself. This is not about him. This is so that he, Christ, the Lamb, might be revealed to all of Israel. The last Old Testament prophet. This is amazing. Because throughout all of Old Testament history, the prophets had been revealing the words of God. But John gets to reveal the very word of God. The word made flesh, 
This is what John gets to do. And Jesus, when he came, he said his ministry was for Israel. So John had to reveal Jesus to Israel first. Because for the old covenant to be fulfilled, the covenant people had to see their Messiah. To fulfill all righteousness, John is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Then the new covenant is ushered in in his blood. And so John is fulfilling all righteousness from the old covenant by proclaiming Jesus who himself is the very propitiation, the very fulfillment embodied, the very word of God. And only a repenting of our sins can Christ be revealed to us. You ever think about that? Only by repenting our sins, only by being forgiven can we even know who Christ is. The revelation that came through John only came through faith. It was those who saw him, who believed, who repented and turned to Christ. So many people try to come to God and even Jesus by other means. They try to avoid repentance and belief. They try to avoid seeking forgiveness. They try to avoid worshiping the Lamb, and you can't. When we talk to people, when we look in our own lives, is there sin in our lives that is stopping us from seeing Christ fully revealed? Are we unable to see who Christ is and what God is doing in us through him because we're still holding on to sin? Are we trying to go before God in other means and by worshiping the Lamb, turning from our sins and believing in Him? As believers, we, many times we think we're beyond repentance. We are reminded that we are as much in need of our Savior every day of our lives as the day that we trusted for the first time. But we are reminded that when we trust in Him, a salvation Sure, today and tomorrow and throughout history. But many times our sin is so comfortable and the sin of the world is so comfortable. So when we speak to people who think that they're good on their own, think that they don't need a lamb, think that they don't need to believe, we need to be reminded of our gospel, reminded of the truth of this. Verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. Um, John's, witnesses, John's witness confirms the other Gospels. There's great imagery here because this, this picture is in all four Gospels. And I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. There's something unique here. It remained on him. We're going to get to that in just a second. So all the Gospels include this. The Spirit. So I saw the Spirit descend from heaven. In Scripture, the Spirit has a lot of amazing imagery. And so the Spirit is going to play the biggest role in John's Gospel of any of the other Gospels. And, the, and this, this mention of the Spirit here is, should have us thinking back to creation. Because in Scripture, the, the Spirit is synonymous with, with breath and wind. And also, if you remember way back to Genesis 1, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. The Spirit is hovering over creation. And here... The Spirit is hovering and initiating new creation. That new creation, the restoration of all things, begins with the ministry of Jesus. And as the Spirit played its role, his role, in the creation of the earth, 
Spirit is playing the role in the recreation of all things, coming down from heaven to remind us that this is not a thing of man. This is not something that John conjured up. This is something that is from God himself. Now we get to the dove. The dove is the confirmation of the one who sent John, but also of his revelation. Whenever we see imagery of birds in the Bible, it is usually because it is something high above us, something that is beyond our understanding, that birds soar above the meager things of of man. And so this bird imagery is, is very powerful here. But the dove specifically has connotation of peace. You remember that after the flood and after Noah and his family, day after day, see the water coming down, what did, he, what did he do? He sent out a dove. And dove came back, couldn't find a place to land. Sent out a dove again, comes back with this olive branch in his mouth, this great picture of a dove and an olive branch, this symbol of peace, that, that restoration has come, that things are right with the world again. And he sends out the dove one more time, and the dove doesn't come back. Because now it is safe to go out. And this picture of a dove has guided God's people. It's, it's a, a beautiful picture, but it's also um, something else I didn't realize until I started meditating on this this week. But the dove is not only a symbol of peace, it's a symbol of, of innocence and purity, but it was also the, um, the acceptable sacrifice for the most poor of the poor. If you had no money for a lamb, if you have no money for a goat, a dove was also an acceptable sacrifice. And so there's this great imagery that even the poor of the poor, who couldn't afford a lamb, a dove came down from heaven for them. And this this bird, this peaceful, innocent bird, gives a picture of, of purity. The God of, of heaven is putting his seal of purity on the sun. And it remained on him. This is a detail that is not included in the other Gospels. This is important. Because in the Old Testament and all the prophets that, that came before, the Spirit would come and go for a time. But this is in fulfillment of all the great prophecies of God putting his spirit within them. The only because it remained on Christ can it remain with us. And John, uh, in in John 15, it's the same imagery here about um, abiding in Christ. Christ says, abide in me. This dwelling and remaining, it's the same idea of abiding. The spirit abides with the son and we abide with Christ by the spirit. So connecting this Trinitarian work. That the Father sends the Spirit in agreement with the Son so that we might remain in Him. We remain in Him, through Him. And so the the, the Trinitarian picture comes to fullness here in verse 33. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. there's, There's two specific prophetic phrases here. He who sent me, He said to me, this is the directive of a prophet. Someone sent me and someone said to me. And if you notice all three members of the Trinity, we we sung earlier uh, a musical version of the Apostles' Creed. But we see here that he, the father, sent him to he, the one who would baptize with the spirit. And this this amazing picture of father, son and spirit in unity here working out in one verse right before us. And what happens here is the reuniting of the lamb and the dove. 
Because remember, we talked about a couple weeks ago that Jesus voluntarily, as, as Philippians 2 tells us, he um, emptied himself, took on flesh. And now to begin his ministry, there's a reuniting between the second and the third member of the Trinity. All by the will of the Father. God's perfect accord working out in this one event that would change the course of history. Not just chronological history, but redemptive history. Father, Son, and Spirit together in divine ministry. And the Holy Spirit, the baptism by the Holy Spirit is is significant because John was baptizing with water for repentance. But the baptism that Christ would give would be a baptism by the Holy Spirit that would be a seal of that redemption, a seal of that repentance, that the Holy Spirit, it is, it is confirmed in God through Christ by the Spirit for all eternity. And so uh, we, we get the, the importance of, of baptism um, not just something we take lightly, not just something that, that, that we do flippantly, but remembering that it is something that signifies dying with Christ, living with him, and being sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so this is Christ's divine right by the Father to baptize with the Holy Spirit. God working in perfect unison. And then verse 34 is where he closes here. And I have seen him. And I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is a strong witness. The only Son of God, the same Son from verse 14. The Word became flesh. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father. This quote that we're all familiar with, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, is included in every gospel but John's. John is assuming that you've read the synoptics. You know that this is the beloved son with whom he is well, well pleased. And if you forgot, John's going to connect it. And this is the most important connection of this passage. The lamb is the son. The sacrifice is God himself. God would provide what he requires. The lamb is the son. The means of redemption and reconciliation is God himself. So far, Jesus has been the word, the creator, the light of the world, the object and the source of eternal life, and the very sacrifice needed to remove the curse that affects the entire world. All culminating in the lamb is the son, and John is the witness to that. He is the last Old Testament prophet because in Christ, the old covenant would be fulfilled in all righteousness. So just to conclude here this morning, um, we spent so much time in, in John 1 and the theology of who Christ is because it is so vitally important. And when you get the, the power and, and the weight of the Lamb of God who came for the sin of the world, understand the power of the gospel that has been applied to our lives and we want to see applied to the lives of others. That we are proclaimers of the Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our message doesn't change. And when the world looks for salvation and reconciliation in everything but Christ, we point them to the Lamb. Because they are sinners. They are in need of redemption. They are in need of being reconciled to God. And that reconciliation is not just for their sin, but it is for all of creation. And it is sealed by the dove. The picture of the purity 
and peace that comes from heaven that only God can give. The Spirit confirming the ministry of the Son all willed out by the Father. Our gospel is one of that has perfect divine agreement. Father, Son, and Spirit working out for the redemption of all things. This is the gospel that has changed our lives. This is the gospel that we stand in. This is the gospel that we proclaim. And this is essential before we move on in the rest of John. And hopefully you guys get this. Um, and if you have any questions, uh, definitely let me know. But uh, I just want you to understand this uh, because as we go out into the world and as we grow, there's going to be a lot of false gospels. There's going to be a lot of other ways to salvation out there. We've got to remember the only way to reconciliation is through the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, you sent John, and you said to him, this is my son. He I am well pleased with. He will take away the sin of the world. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for baptizing us in the Holy Spirit, that by repentance and forgiveness, we have been reconciled to you. And we trust and we know that one day all things will be reconciled to you. Yet you're not finished here on this world. We know that you have more sheep out there, that you have people in this city. Lord, we pray for uh, the lost sheep yet to come home here throughout the nation and throughout the nations. And that the good news is the same to every tongue, tribe, and nation. That the suffering servant came to save sinners. Praise be to God that he is merciful and just and loves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.